guys, this is Pastor Justin Bowers, and you are listening to the New Community Podcast. Uh, We're thrilled that you're listening today, and we hope that this is a great experience for you. I wanted to let you know that you can support the work of New Community and all that God is doing down here in West Virginia by going to New Community WV and then clicking on the Give tab. Uh, We would love to have your support, and we would be excited that you would journey with us in all that God has called us to, to be a people finding and following Jesus beyond Sundays. Enjoy the podcast. Hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9. You might have it on your phone. We'll have it on the screen as well. Um, as you're turning there, one thing I forgot to mention, we are, we are, we are, we are, everybody needs to pay attention here. We are in desperate, desperate need of some Kids Town teachers. We need some more Kids Town teachers to step up, about five or six of you, um, and we're not going to move forward in this service till you volunteer. So <laughs> I'm kidding. That, that's what they do in Ethiopia. That's, that's how, like, the offering basket comes back and you say, we didn't get enough, pass it again. That's literally, I've seen that happen. Um, so I, I'm not going to make you uncomfortable, but I would love it. If some of you just stepped up and said, we'll, we'll jump in, we'll, we'll kind of step into being what, uh, what Kids Town needs. Because what that means right now, I know, and, I, and she would never say this, is that Abby is filling all those holes and others are filling all those holes. And oftentimes that means they're pouring out and they're not being filled up. So we need some folks to really step up. Some of you, if you're, if you're kind of ready to jump back in there or want to jump in, let us know, fill out a connection card and, and we'll get you plugged in. Um, we are going to jump in today. Second Samuel chapter 9 is where we're going to go, but I wanted to tell you a story first that I read this week, and, I, and the story was so uh, sad to me, but also fascinating to me. On, on New Year's Eve back in 1995, there was a 78-year-old woman named Frances McNeil, and Frances lived alone in Knoxville, Tennessee, and she had gone to bed early that night. Uh, a stranger who was outside the house had watched the house lights turn off from, from out there and, and ended up intruding and breaking into the house. The woman awoke. She kind of woke up and heard this rummaging going on. She walked out of her bedroom and saw this, this intruder kind of rummaging through her things. She, she snuck up on him as quietly as she could. I don't know if she was trying to get out of the house or what was going on. But he turned, and with his crowbar that he had broken in with, he beat her until she died. Really, really terrible story. The next morning, Francis's son, Mike, found her body and called his older brother. His older brother's name was Everett Worthington, and, and Everett came to the house immediately. Worthington, Worthington describes this as such a traumatic experience to walk through the house that he was raised in and see the evidence of such violence. He said he remembered grabbing a baseball bat as he walked through the house and wishing that the intruder was still there so he could just take care of, of this vengeance that he felt in that moment. I know this is a this is like a heavy, hard, dark story as we start, but there's a piece of this that makes this a really fascinating story to me because Everett Worthington was at this point, back, back at this time, and even today, a professor of psychology at Virginia Commonwealth University. He, at that point, was actively researching the psychology, watch this, of forgiveness. That was his expertise. He was, even as he walked into his childhood home where his mother had been murdered, studying how do humans, how do people forgive, and how can forgiveness work alongside of justice. And in that moment, he said he remembers thinking, I'm this guy who's written a book about forgiveness. I have taught student after student after student about this. And he said, as he stood in that house, he determined, I have to try to forgive this killer. Can you imagine? having the the wherewithal in that moment to say that. 
When I started to plan this series, you asked for it, most of the questions that came in were somewhat more of that, that intellectual nature, the questions that we've been talking about. Why is the Bible so confusing? What about politics and faith? Do my pets go to heaven? All, all those things that kind of just wrestle in our brains. But a couple questions were questions that stood out because they were simple sentences, simple questions that I could tell actually were more than just a simple sentence. They were questions that held uh, more than just intellectual questions. They, they actually, these simple questions, though they were brief, held a lot of emotion. And, and just in one sentence, you could see these, these, these last couple questions that we're going to cover that asked uh, with, with a lot of hurt, with a lot of pain, with a lot of real life, I don't know how to move past this. And, and so next week, as we wrap up this series, I'm a little bit nervous about this, so you can pray for me. We're, we're going to talk about some of the darker parts of God that we see in Scripture. Why does God at times seem so violent? Why are there stories that seem uh, aggressive on God's behalf? And, and what do we do about that? But, but this week, I want to talk about forgiveness. See, when I looked at the questions that came in, the one that stood out for this week was simply phrased this way. And I, and I think we have this on slide. It said, how do you completely forgive yourself and others? And, and you know, what stood out to me was not the question of how do I forgive myself and others, but that word completely, because some of us are really good at sort of forgiving, right? We can sort of forgive ourselves. We can sort of forgive others, but, but completely was the thing that I just kind of underlined and highlighted, and it's just, it's this idea of fully. This is a question where someone is looking for freedom and for healing, and it sounds like an attempt really to find some hope. So here's my thought. When it comes to us being able to forgive, I think most of us have things that have happened. People have hurt us, caused brokenness in our lives, offended us, abandoned us, wounded us, or, and this may be just as powerful, we have been the offender, right? Like when we look at our life, we've caused hurt. We've made mistakes that cost us relationships. We've inflicted wounds that don't seem to be able to be restored. And in those places, forgiveness seems impossible and complete forgiveness seems absolutely unattainable. Let me give you an example of this. Any angry drivers in the room? Confession time. We're not Catholic, but we're going to do it anyway. Okay. I read a story a few years ago of a guy who would get so angry when he was driving when, when someone cut him off. I know none of you know what this is like. I, I don't see you around town. I've never witnessed this, okay? That when someone would cut him off, he reached in his glove compartment and he had a large quantity of golf balls and he would speed up and get past the car and he would roll back the sunroof and he would bomb the car behind him <laughs> with golf balls. He was so angry. Yeah, it's not a good idea. We're not gonna do that, Okay. <laughs> But this guy was driving around waiting and ready to go after those that he felt had wronged him. Now, the problem was, here's the reality. The problem was he wasn't only throwing golf balls at the offensive drivers. He was actually throwing golf balls at all the unresolved hurt, anger, brokenness, and wounds that had ever occurred to him. See, there were a lot of people who had ticked him off before he decided to invest in golf balls. Do you recognize that? The older ones just hadn't been dealt with. See, here's the thing about forgiveness. It is possible to let unforgiveness become the golf ball stored in our car. That's the reality of our lives, right? That, that's when it comes to the nature of being able to forgive ourselves, being able to forgive others, we can store up this anger, store up this hurt, store up th this wound. When what I heard in this question someone wrote regarding this series was, how do I clean out my glove box? 
How do I get rid of this stuff that I just want to keep throwing at people? Because here's the thing, and if you have spent or you do spend any time here at New Community, you're going to hear me say this. This is like one of those life motto things for me because it's that important and it relates directly to forgiveness. I, I see it in every one of us. Here, here's the thing. Hurt people always hurt others. And healed people always heal others. See, this is what I know. I, I, I want to I understand this. I want to dig into this today because if we don't confront the golf balls in our life, the unforgiveness that we're still holding on to, even if you say, well, I forgave them sort of. I, I forgave them 80%, right? Some of you are statisticians. I, I forgave them 92%, but I've still got some of this. Then you are functioning. You are living as that hurt person who will eventually at times hurt others and healed people heal others. So I want to look at a story from the scripture. And, and once we unpack this story, we're going to come back to that question. How do I completely forgive myself and others? We're going to come back to it and I'll give you some practical thoughts. But 2 Samuel 9 is, is where we're going to go. And I want you to understand this story in 2 Samuel picks up in the history of Israel. Israel had their very first king who was a guy named King Saul. He was tall, dark, and handsome. He was an amazing leader for a while. He rejected God. And Saul had this son named Jonathan. And Jonathan should have been the next king. You know what I'm talking about? Like he should have. Have you seen Lion King yet? He should have been the king. Yeah, he's got that going. But God had come into the picture through the prophet Samuel, and Samuel had prophesied, no, David is going to be the king. King David is going to come. David is this lowly shepherd boy. He's actually going to become the king. Now, here's the weird part of this family. Saul didn't like it. Saul tried to pursue David. Saul tried to kill David. But Jonathan lived in submission. He said, it's okay. David is my best friend. I'd love for him to be king. And so while Saul repeatedly tries to kill David and his best friend Jonathan tries to protect him, here's what we see. Now, before we go to 2 Samuel 9, I want to read you one verse from 2 Samuel 4. Because in this chapter, in chapter 4, both Jonathan and Saul have now been killed. They've been killed in battle, and David is ready to ascend the throne. He's taken his position at the, as the king. Look at verse 4 of chapter 4. Here's what it says. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and he became disabled. Some translations say crippled. He's, his name was Mephibosheth. So I want you to understand what's taking place here. Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is being cared for by a nurse while his father and his grandfather are out fighting the war to protect the kingdom that this grandson should have one day inherited. And when both Jonathan and Saul are killed, that means, what that means is when the king and his son are killed, the kingdom will now change families. The kingdom will now change hands. That means that the new king is probably going to go around eliminating all threats to his kingdom. So we're going to kill all the family members of the previous king. We're shifting the kingdom of power. And there's going to be no challenge for authority. That means this young five-year-old boy, Mephibosheth, is in trouble. So his nurse takes him to hide him, but he falls along the way. I don't know if she drops him. I don't know if he stumbles. I don't know what happens. But he becomes crippled. Now I just want you to pause for a minute. If anybody had the right for anger, if anybody had the right for unforgiveness, Mephibosheth was the child. Can you imagine this being your story? The day your grandfather and your father are killed, you're crippled. You lose your ability to live life fully, along with every hope that you ever had for the, for the future. It's possible that as a five-year-old, listen, and this is many of us, this is our story, it's possible that as a five-year-old, he didn't realize the weight of his story. But it is impossible as the years pass that he didn't realize the weight of his story. 
See, many of us didn't realize we should be unforgiving, but we grew into our story. We started to understand our story as we grew up. That means, listen, at this point in David's story, the last for survivor of his enemy Saul is a young crippled boy. So time passes, and David's fully established as, as the king. This is where we pick up the story in 2 Samuel 9. Look at this in verse 1. David's on his throne. He says this. David asks, is there anyone still left from the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now, I want you to understand, this is an incredible question that David asks because the question the king should have been asking is, is there anyone left I should kill? Is there anyone left I should get rid of? Instead, he says, who can I show kindness to on my behalf of my enemy's son who was my best friend? Now, look at verse 2. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. Now listen, this is his story. The way that Mephibosheth is known is by his history, right? He's the same child who is crippled, who has lost his father, his grandfather, his ability to walk in one single moment. And not only this, but he's technically the enemy of the king. But this king comes to the crippled. By the way, that will preach really well, a king that comes to the crippled. And he decides to take action. Look at verse 4. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Makir, son of Emil, in Lodabar. Now you can write that down, you can jot that down, you can circle that. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Makir, son of Emil. Now I want you to understand, I want you to highlight this, underline this, because Lodabar matters. The word Debar in the Hebrew literally means word or thing. And the word lo is a negator. It makes things negative, so it means no. So this place, Lodabar, is literally no word, no thing. It's a no-name town. It's a place that doesn't matter. It's a place that, 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 that most scholars would say it had no pasture. It had no life there. It was just, it was like the place of a country song. Are you with me? Like, that's kind of what it was. Did you ever notice how the place of unforgiveness leaves you in the middle of nowhere? Did you ever realize how when we walk around with that anger, that hurt, that bitterness, it puts us in a place where we really don't even know where we are. Like, it's possible to be holding on to hurt and bitterness, anger, wounds, unforgiveness, and be missing out on the ability to actually live fully present. Look at verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, now watch, he bowed down to pay him Honor. Now, I want you to just, just, again, underline, circle. Remember, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. And then we have verse 7 where David says, don't be afraid, because he was afraid. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And then watch verse 8. Mephibosheth did what? He bowed down. And said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Now, I want you to just, this, just grab this because in the Hebrew writing, we miss this as Americans, right? We miss this as English speakers in our translations. In Hebrew writing, when they wanted to draw attention to something, when the Jewish people wanted to really draw attention, they would parallel whatever the thing was they wanted to draw attention to. They would parallel it with repetition in their writing. So in verse 6, we see Mephibosheth, the king comes to him and it says he bows down. 
And in verse 8, we see it says, Mephibosheth bowed down. So in Jewish culture, in the Hebrew language, this means pay attention to what happens in between. And what happens in between is verse 7, the centerpiece of this story, where the king comes to the crippled and says, don't be afraid. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to restore to you what you lost. And you're going to eat at my table forever. It's the place of surrender, of forgiveness. Now, I'm going to let you in on a secret about this story. In this story, when you read this story of David and Mephibosheth, you need to think of Mephibosheth as you, and you need to think of David like Jesus. That's the heart of this story. It's a gospel story. It's a prophetic story before Jesus was ever imagined in Mary's womb. This is the story of a good king coming to offer forgiveness because what David does shows us the way God is able to deal with the golf balls in your glove box. It shows us the way he's able to deal with our hurt, with our pain, with our unforgiveness, our anger, our bitterness. See, we can draw a couple things out of this story that I want you to grab onto today about that question. How do I completely, completely, just say completely. Some of you just need to name the word completely because you've never done it completely. How do I completely forgive myself and others? Here's the first thing that I see in this story. God doesn't hide from your hurt. Amen? God doesn't hide from your hurt. Mephibosheth was crippled in both legs. Can I, just, can I just let you in? This culture, this time, to be crippled was basically a death sentence. You were cast aside. You were put in places like Lodabar, no-name places. Just put the outcast, the ostracized over there. Just, just leave them alone. And everybody else can avoid them. Put their own little community together. If you have leprosy, put a leper's colony together. Put them in a place where all the freaks live, where all the frauds live, where all the the broken and the wounded and the hurting, the crippled live. Put them aside. And that's what so many of us do when it comes to our hurt. We hide. We want to live in places where we just say, I don't have to deal with this. I don't have to go there. But listen, not for David, not in this moment. See, in this moment, David wants to press past Mephibosheth's lameness. He actually approaches him. I I wonder if maybe for the first time since the death of his father and grandfather, and he gives him worth and value. He says, who can I show kindness to? And the servant says, well, just Mephibosheth, but he's lame. I mean, literally, that's what he's saying, but he's lame. Eh." And David says, no, let's go. Let's go and approach. Because he looks at Mephibosheth and says, the label you've owned for yourself is not the label that I see you with. This label of crippled, this label of lame, I don't see you, the king says to this young man. See, in this town, we're going to talk more about Lodabar in a minute, where Mephibosheth was living, I have to think he had a label. In a no-name town, even the crippled stand out. And he had to have this label. I have to think he was known as the crippled grandson of the former king. If it was a no-name town, then surely it would be easy to gain a reputation here. Can I ask you a question about your unforgiveness? What's the label you carry with it? See, I I believe a lot of times that, that our inability to forgive allows us to take labels on ourselves. I can't forgive you. I can't forgive myself. And therefore, because I'm holding on to this unforgiveness, I've picked up a name tag and I've written my label, my identity, my relationship, uh, whatever that is, I've written it down and it now defines me. What are the labels that your unforgiveness have, have presented in your life? Maybe your label is abandoned. I was abandoned. Maybe your label is abused. I, I'm abused. That's who I am. That's who I became. 
I'm fearful. I'm alone. I'm broken. I'm wounded. I'm empty. I'm not worthy. I don't, I don't belong. I have no people. I have no one around me. You know what I think God likes to do when he talks to himself? You know he does that, right? Do you know that God talks to himself? Like, it's weird for us. It's not weird for God because it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We see this in Genesis, by the way. He looks at himself and he goes, let us make man in our image. See, the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, I think they hang out and they talk to each other. And I think God echoes the words of David. Can you picture God the Father looking at Jesus and the Holy Spirit and going, is there anyone else that I can show kindness to? Is there anyone else that I can go to and I can show kindness? By the way, that word kindness is said. Everybody say said. This is actually a really biblical term. If you remember our Ruth series a, a few months ago, the word said is this loving kindness, this covenantal love. And you know what the Spirit says when God says, hey, is there anybody else with the Holy Spirit, listen, who dwells in the deepest recesses of who you are if you are a follower of Christ? And by the way, the Holy Spirit, if he lives inside of you, knows you better than you know yourself. He knows your labels and he knows the falseness of your labels. And I think when God's hanging out talking to himself, isn't this a beautiful picture? The Holy Spirit says, yeah, I know someone and I know their name. They don't know their name. They forgot their name because they've got this unforgiveness thing going on. But I know their name and God doesn't hear your labels and he doesn't see your labels and he doesn't define you by your labels. Instead, he simply says, well, let's go call them all out of their labels and show them has said. And he starts this pursuit because he's never been scared of our hurt. Here's the second thing I think we see in this story. This is, this is progression, right? God will pursue you even in the places that you're afraid to name. God is going to come after you in the places that you're afraid to name. See, it was not coincidence that Mephibosheth was living in a place with no name. I, I would say that's the perfect place for someone who's harboring this crippledness, the bitterness, the anger, the hurt. See, low to bar might sound familiar to you. You might know well the places with no name. When Everett Worthington began to try to forgive his mother's killer, he, he said one of the things that actually helped him was the knowledge that after the murder happened, it was evident that the intruder had run from room to room to room, smashing all the mirrors with the crowbar because he couldn't stand looking at himself. He couldn't stand looking at himself. Remember what I said at the beginning, hurt people hurt others. You see, this intruder, this murderer carried out in reality what many of us are struggling with in our unforgiveness. He lived out, he embodied the experience that many of us have in our hearts and minds. Many of us live in a place with no name, low to bar, hiding from pain, believing if we choose not to give it a name, then surely it can't hurt us. If I don't have to name the fact that I was abused, that I was assaulted, that I was abandoned, that I was wounded, that I was left behind, that I'll never measure up, or I feel like I'll never measure up, that I don't have anybody, if I, if I can just avoid that and not name it, then, then whatever that is that's trying to latch onto me, maybe it won't hurt so bad. And if our unforgiveness is about our own self, then it's possible we live our lives smashing the mirrors of our souls to avoid the reality of where we're dwelling. The good news, listen, and it really is good news, is that in the word of God, God names the no-name places. So you don't miss this. In the word of God, God says that no-name place that the Jewish people would have forgotten, it's called Lodabar, and I go there. I sent a king there. I sent a good king there to call a crippled 
home, the good news is that David went to the no-name place to find a way to help this young man who was held up by his past. The good news, brothers, sisters, is God still does the same thing in our hearts. He still comes to you. You've heard me say this before, but it's one of my favorite poems of all times. There's a writer, Francis Thompson, and the poem is called The Hound of Heaven. I love this. He says, I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind in the midst of tears. I hid from him and under running laughter up visted hopes I sped and shot precipitated down titanic glooms of chasmed fears from those strong feet that followed, followed after, but with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace, deliberate speed, majestic instancy, they beat and a voice beat more instant than the feet the hound of heaven. See, God pursues us even to the places that we're afraid to name. He doesn't ever slow down. You are loved so much by a God that he is relentlessly going to come after you. And so some of you keep coming to church and you're like, I don't know why I keep showing up here. I walk out of here uncomfortable. I've had so many men say that to me, right? So many men are like, I just, just, you're talking to me. No, I'm not. It's the hound of heaven who wants to name the places that you're afraid to name. When David comes to Mephibosheth, he comes to the place of no name. And you know what he could have done? He could have simply said, David had every right, he had every prerogative to step into that moment and look at Mephibosheth and say, listen, I could kill you, I pardon you. He could have said, I have a right to destroy you, but I'm not taking that route. I'm simply forgiving you, and you can continue to live in this wilderness. Just know you've been pardoned. You don't have to live in fear all the time. That would have been grace. That would have been mercy. But David doesn't settle for mercy, and neither does God. He goes after pursuit and belonging. God's interested in more than just looking at you and saying, you're forgiven, now move on. He's interested in saying, you're forgiven, now belong. Now come back to a place with a name. So David brings Mephibosheth into his home, and he's offering him more than belonging, something deeper. But don't, don't miss Mephibosheth's actions. See, here's, here's the last thing I want to talk about. See, surrender opens the way for God's work. We see in that verse 6 and that verse 8 that Mephibosheth bows down. When we bow down, it's actually an act of surrender. At the end of today, some of you, I'm going to invite you to come to our version of an altar and actually bow down and say, God, I am courageous enough in this moment. It hurts. It hurts in incredible ways. But with my unforgiveness, I'm surrendering it to you. Because when we surrender, it opens the way for God's work. Mephibosheth bows, he surrenders, he recognizes his own helplessness in the presence of the king, and he surrenders to it. And when you ask, how is it possible to completely forgive myself and others, it begins with surrender. There's no other way around it. You're not going to find a book, you're not going to find anything on Amazon that gives you 10 steps how to, how to forgive someone without understanding. It starts with surrender. Surrender opens the way for God. When you give up the right to retain the anger, the hurt, the bitterness, the wounds, listen, that's what unforgiveness is. It's holding on to something you never had the right to carry anyway. That's what unforgiveness is. It wasn't yours. Someone sins against you. Listen, I want you to understand this. When someone sins against you, they have defaced the image of God. So if anyone gets to be offended, it's God because it's his creation that has been hurt. It's his creation that has been damaged. So when we hold on to that unforgiveness, we're taking something that belongs to God. God, you can deal with this. And let me say this to you. The, the, the second part of this question I really struggled with this week, how do I forgive myself completely? Here's the answer I came to. I don't think this is helpful at all, but I got to say it. Sorry. Some of you are here and you're saying, I can't forgive myself. Good. Good. 
Because you know what? You were never meant to be the source of your forgiveness. That's not you. You're not the one who has the power to forgive yourself. Only God is that. And when we surrender to that reality, the outcome is the same for us that it was for Mephibosheth. I can't say that name. I've done so good today. I'm so afraid of swearing, right? Look at the things that David offers. When Mephibosheth surrenders, the things the king offers to the surrendered cripple in his presence, when he surrenders, it opens the door for God's work. Here's God's work. He says, you now have my hesed, my loving kindness. I will give you my loving kindness. See, the love of God is the source of forgiveness. Jesus on the cross demonstrates, has said, he demonstrates loving kindness. He looked into the faces of his enemies and says, God, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. It's compassion, it's mercy. It's saying, God, these hurt people are hurting others. So give them, I give you forgiveness. Just forgive them, God. It's not mine to give. I forgive them because they don't know what you forgive. How can you forgive? Only when you've experienced the love of God. You can't forgive until you've experienced the love of God. And when you experience the love of God, you can't help but forgive. I know, listen, I know this is hard. I know he hurt you, whoever he was. She left you. They cut you apart. But if you're able to surrender, then I believe the love of God will well up and pave the way for healing. It's loving kindness that David offers. But listen, it doesn't end there. He says, I'm not just gonna give you loving kindness. He says, I'm actually gonna restore to you all that you've lost. I'm gonna restore all the land that you've lost. See, God is not unable to restore what you've lost. I wanna say that to you. Some of you are harboring this unforgiveness because you think I can never get back what I lost. I can never get that relationship back. I can never get that, that relationship with my father, my ex-wife, my ex-husband. I can never rebuild those things. David says, I'm offering you restoration. I'm not just giving you food and kindness, but I'm gonna restore the things that you've lost. He's offering to Mephibosheth a renewal of everything he's lost. Let me tell you a story of this. I have a really good friend named Lorraine. She's come down here with, with youth ministries several years ago. They brought kids down here to serve in, in Buchanan. Here, here's what happened in her life. At 46 years old, she knew she'd been adopted as a child. And she decided she wanted to do a DNA test because she thought, I need to know some family health history, right? This is one of the frustrations for those who've been adopted. They don't know their family history of health. And what she found as she did the ancestry or the DNA kit, she sent this in and she got a message from someone who said, They've connected us, and I think I'm your biological father. Let me tell you how wild that is. And this began this messaging relationship where her birth parents were telling her, we've always loved you. We're so sorry we had to put you up for adoption. We would love to restore a relationship, but if you don't want to, we understand. We're, we're surrendered, by the way. We're surrendered to what you decide, and we love you. And we're going to love you regardless, but if you want to restore this relationship, we would love to. So, so Lorraine and her husband spent Thanksgiving with her birth family. They lived in Pittsburgh. They went all the way to California and spent Thanksgiving with her birth family. She found she had a sister that looked exactly like her. The pictures are eerie. And then they went back for Christmas. And then when they got back to Pittsburgh, they began praying, and they felt like God said, I want to restore what you've lost. And so I'd like for you to move from Pittsburgh all the way to California and live by your biological family. And they've moved into the same neighborhood. And you know what happened? Her biological family adopted her back home. How does that happen, right? Let's, let's make that thing straight and make sense. Friends, I, I just want to tell you this. I'm not up here giving you kind words, saying God will restore what you've lost. I hope you feel better walking out of here today. I'm saying to you, God is not playing around. 
Restoration still happens. I have seen it. I've experienced it. And, and, and don't miss, me, miss what I'm saying. I'm not telling you if you were in an abusive relationship that God is calling you to restore that relationship. Don't go back to toxic. Stay out of toxic. But God will restore everything you've lost in ways that you've never imagined. He may not restore it the way that you expect it to happen, but he will restore it in ways that you've never dreamed about. It's supernaturally, miraculously. I've seen it happen. Here's the final thing that, that David offers. Man, I'm getting hung up. <laughs> he says, I'm going to give you my love and kindness. I'm going to restore what you've lost. Finally, you're going to sit at my table, and you're going to eat all the days of your life. See, he's offering him not just loving kindness and restoration, but nourishment. Nourishment, a new way of living, a new nutrition. See, some of us, some of you spend your time, more, spend more of your time feeding on your bitterness than you do on the fullness of life. You know this, right? I know this. Some of you work with people. This is, they're just grumpy, grouchy, angry all the time because you know why that is? Because all they do is eat their anger. They're just eating their bitterness. They're eating their frustration. I'm so, I can't believe this person. You're eating the wrong things. And when we surrender and we open the door for God's work, we start to eat the things of life again. See, David didn't just give Mephibosheth a seat for a few times. Hey, come have some dinners with me. But for the rest of his life, he up close and personally invited this man to a new place of belonging where he could be nourished and sustained. David took the grandson of Saul the former kingdom where destruction and depression reigned. Read the story of Saul and you'll see this was a kingdom of depression, of fear, of anxiety, of all those ghosts that many of you struggle with in your own legacy. And David took this young crippled man out of it and he invited him into his own kingdom of mercy and grace. This would have cost David. It would have cost him his reputation. He shouldn't have done this, but he does. He extends grace like Mephibosheth has never known and it changes his life. When we get to the New Testament, this is where I'm gonna close. Jesus hosts a dinner as well. Right before he would go to the cross and he would hang on the cross and he would look into the face of his enemies and say, God, forgive them. He sits with his friends and it says in Luke 22, it says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. And after taking the cup, he gave thanks and he said, take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. It was the cup of wine that Jesus poured that he invited his disciples to drink, and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And he took bread, and he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. See, David's table is one table. This is another table, a place where Jesus invites his followers, and they are never the same, where the king still invites the crippled to love and restoration and nourishment. See, I think often we miss the power of the communion table because it's simply a tradition we do. But what if this table is another king in Mephibosheth's story? What if this table is a place where the lame, the wounded, the broken, the mislabeled are invited to a new place, a place with a name? What if this table, this remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ who could forgive his enemies even on the cross, what if this table is a place where forgiveness still happens? I'm going to invite the band to come. And as we close today, I want communion to, to, to be about forgiveness. I want communion to be a place where you come face to face with a good king who says to you, I've got food like you haven't been eating for a long time. 
I'm going to restore to you things that you've never imagined. I'm going to pour out love on you like you've never dreamed about. And here's the reality. Listen, don't miss this. I know they're moving, but don't miss this. Some of you are not going to be able to come to this table today because you're not able to forgive or extend that surrender. And that's okay. That's okay. But we are committed. Listen, when we say Beyond Sundays, we're committed to walking with you toward health, toward surrender, toward forgiveness, toward grace. Maybe the first step for you is saying to someone, I can't go there. Would you pray with me? Or maybe your first step is you got to get here or you got to get here and you got to do what Mephibosheth did and you got to bow down and say, God, I don't have the power to forgive. It hurt too bad. I know Justin's talking about this. I know it makes sense, but he doesn't know the depth of my pain. And today I just need to surrender it. God, you know the depth of my pain. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you right now saying, God, today someone wants love and kindness. Someone needs love and kindness. They've labeled themselves. God, you don't see that label. We're going to set them free today. We're going to start this process of freedom. And that's what this table is about. Everett Worthington laid out a model of forgiveness, and this is so good. I'm going to cover it really quickly. He calls it the reach model. So how do I completely forgive myself and others? Here's what he said. He said, the R is you got to recall the hurt. Man, that's hard. You got to name it. You got to actually say, I've got to give this low to bar place a name in my life. But you do so with the decision to release forgiveness, not to defend, not to stay angry, just to simply recall. God, take me to that place. I, I got to recall it because then, E, I can empathize with the hurt person who hurt me. And again, this is, this is like years of counseling, friends. So don't think this all has to happen right now. But I have to empathize with the person. Why did they do this? Why, why did I do this? Why, how have they been hurt in their life? And what, what caused them to come to this place? And then he says, in that moment, when you begin to see empathy, when you begin to understand, they came from a legacy of hurt too. They, they were a hurt person hurting me. That we offer what he calls an altruistic gift. Altruistic is sacrificial. He says we give the gift of forgiveness. We remember a time maybe when someone forgave us and we extend that to someone else. Remember, I'm not saying to you that you have to walk out of this place and go to that person and say, hey, I forgave you because that may be toxic. But I'm saying the freedom that comes in your heart when you deal with your own unforgiveness is what starts to set you free. Now, maybe you do. Maybe you need to walk out of this place after you take communion and send a text, send a call, send a letter, whatever it is. There needs to be some way where you say, this is real. He says, the C is we commit. That before you leave today, you write down, you say, I forgave blank for hurting me. I forgave myself for hurting them. I actually am naming this. I'm writing it down. I'm sticking it in my Bible. I'm saving a note on my phone. I'm putting the date, the time, because this is real. And then the last part is that we would H, we would hold on to forgiveness. We would not let go of that note. We would make that an altar in our lives. I'm going to pray. You may need to bow. You may need to submit. You may need to surrender. This may drag up a whole lot of pain. But we are here with you. I'm going to be playing the guitar, but I'm going to be praying over you as I play. There are others in this room, and I don't know who they are, but they know who they are because God is telling them right now, if somebody goes, you need to be around them, and you need to be praying for them because this is not easy. So we're going to be the church together today. It's not all in the pastor. You're a kingdom of priests. That's what the scripture says. So you get to intercede for each other. So let's do this today. Let's go to God. Father.